This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Science Talk, the more or less weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on February 16th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, a little inside baseball. But if you're a consumer of science news, which you are, you'll be interested. We're going to be talking about science and science news on the web, blogging, and various other related issues with three experts. Former Scientific American Editor-in-Chief John Rennie, current SIAM website news editor Robin Lloyd, and the ubiquitous blogger Bora Zivkovich, better known as simply Bora or Bora Z. First up, John Rennie, who spoke at the recent Science Online 2011 conference in North Carolina, which is run by Bora. John's topic was, can online science journalism be better than traditional science journalism? My name is John Rennie. I'm a PLOS blogger. I was the editor-in-chief of Scientific American for uh, 15 years, so basically right around the time that there started to be uh, a, a web that uh, mainstream media could put things onto. Um, and so if the question that we want to talk about today is, can science journalism online be better than traditional online journalism, the, the answer that leaps to mind for me at that point is, mother of God, I hope so. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't... And, Putting that in the appropriate context, now it's it's not just that obviously uh, online uh, journalism lends itself uh, so well to a lot of good coverage, the fact that it's uh, so uh, easily lent to uh, dialogue, to linking to sources, uh, to multimedia, uh, to the, the, the diversity of opportunities and uh, ways of approaching all of this, not to mention the extraordinary explanatory power of lolcats. But the, the, you know, and there have been some, I think, really great accomplishments in the area of science journalism already. And in particular, something I would like to actually really flag is uh, the work that Ivan Aransky has been doing with his creation of both uh, Embargo Watch and Retraction Watch, which I think are actually perfect examples of the kinds of new uh, venues that can pop up for addressing something that most of us in science journalism have acknowledged for a really long time, which is that we haven't generally paid enough attention to the retractions, and we haven't really looked uh, or offered enough of a glimpse inside sort of the, the sausage factory of scientific publication, both of which are hugely important for conveying the realities of how science is actually changing and, and being presented, uh, not even just to the public, but to the, the, uh, the scientific community itself. Those are all really important. It's great that we have the opportunities with online science journalism to try to address that. But I would like to say that if what we're trying to do in uh, science journalism online is get a fresh start and genuinely be better than what we've been doing in the past, then the most important thing is to actually try to fix what has bugged me for years and years as one of the biggest failings of traditional science journalism, which is that 95% or more of what passes as science news is driven by what I refer to as the big paper of the week model. 
It's the one in which the prestigious science journal issues its uh, uh, embargoed press release, which goes out to everybody, which everybody jumps on, which everybody then writes about, and it all comes out at the same time, and we have a wonderful example of a kind of packed journalism, and we have to get those stories out right away all at the same time, because you don't want to be scooped by the other guys who are writing that exact same story, because that would make you look stupid if you didn't have that same story. And of course, you have to hurry, because the journals are continuing to push out a whole bunch of new information, and you've got to write about that soon, too. So heaven forbid you step off that treadmill for one little second. How in the world does this help the cause of informing the public about what the actual nature of science is? When a paper appears in the scientific literature, that is the beginning of its life. And that is really one of the least important moments in terms of when it actually starts to matter in terms of the science. And why are we in such a hurry to try to collect the opinions of scientists or anybody else that we think is relevant to the stories and cram those into stories instantaneously with very little opportunity for forethought? It doesn't make a lot of sense. How does that serve also to make sure that the public is largely exposed to a very small number of stories, not just ones that are appearing in a select subset of journals, but even to a few stories within those premium journals? What is a, you know, what is the greatest curse that you could have as a researcher, but to actually have the crowning accomplishment to get your, your work into something like uh, Nature or Science or one of the other you know, top-tier journals, but it isn't one of the most exciting stories. It has the misfortune to appear at the same time some other bigger story is, is breaking. You're overlooked just as much as if you had been in some other you know, uh, more minor, uh, lower-tier journal. What a, what a curse that is. And, and so, you know, as a Gadankin experiment about this, play along with me on this, hypothetically, and really, it's an impossible one, but that's what Gedanken experiments are for. Hypothetically, suppose in the same way that the journals uh, institute their own sort of embargo about when any of us could write anything, that we can't write about anything earlier than a certain moment. Suppose we, the huge, extended, whatever constitutes science journalism, we, we instituted our own informal moratorium, which you said none of us will actually write about anything that appears in a, in a science journal for... Six months after it appears. Six months! I'm just one man, please. Suppose we did that. What would be the result of that? Well... Editors would say, why don't you have that team? Well, no, but but I'm saying it's like if the editors, the reporters, everybody involved, if we collectively said, if we wanted to re-examine what constitutes science news, because right now we're defining science news as what did they publish this week? What? That's been discussed in all sorts of meetings and a lot of the follow-up studies and the further scrutiny of that will accumulate over time. I understand why it happens that way, but for my purposes of my experiment, just imagine that we all decided we were all going to just wait six months. What would happen? Well, the science would still move right along because the scientists are all going to see it in the actual journal, so we're not interfering with the progress of science. And by the time we would actually write about this stuff, there would be a much clearer opinion about whether or not this was a real finding and whether or not it held up in any sort of way. And the public, for the most part, is not going to be any less well-informed by, by any of that. So, I mean, I'm not pushing that as an actual policy, but I want to just point out that what we're doing right now, for the most part under the heading of science journalism, does not really serve the interests of science or the public. What it serves the interest of is us. 
Because it's really, really convenient. And it's really, really easy to write stories when people hand you press releases about them. It gives you this great ramp up on a story. But what I want to make the point is that ramp up is putting you into the back of a van that the journals are driving you where they want to go with that. So there. <laughs> with that in mind, I'm going to go sit down now on somebody else ramp. John Rennie's blog is called The Gleaming Retort. It's at blogs.plos.org slash retort. Next up, let's hear from Bora Z. We spoke at the Scientific American offices. How did you get to become king of the science blogging universe? I don't know. It just happened. I've, I've been blogging for several years now and uh, blogging on scienceblogs.com for, for a few years, uh, which is a very visible platform. So it was uh, easy to be seen and heard while blogging there. Uh, also organizing the science online conferences, uh, editing the open laboratory anthologies m- makes one a lot of friends that way. And now you're here with us at Scientific American. And happy to be here. How did that happen? Uh, how did that happen? Uh, earlier this summer, uh, a whole series of, of events happened in the science blogosphere, uh, with, uh, usually referred to as Pepsi-gate. Uh, let's not go into details of exactly what happened, but as a result, uh, scienceblogs.com is now not the only and the most visible uh, network, what is happening is, uh, uh, is an appearance of a brand new, uh, ecosystem of science blogging with a number of different, uh, networks, some owned by media or, or publishing organizations, other are bloggers collectives. Uh, some have been around that they just became visible in, in the wake of the, these events and the others are brand new. Uh, so Scientific American, who's had seven blogs for several years now and, and a wonderful website is, uh, is a natural, uh, entrant into this field. And anybody who missed Pepsi-Gate can ease, if you just Google Pepsi-Gate. Yes, it's all over the place. You'll find more information than you could ever want on what happened there. And, and it, it was a huge deal within science journalism. I'm not sure how much the rest of the world paid attention to it, but uh, the journalism world in general pay, paid attention to it. So people, uh, there, there was a lot of discussion among the media folks on Twitter, for instance, and on blogs discussing. So you know, Neiman Journalism Lab and the, those people—they've been discussing PepsiGate in, in quite a lot of detail. So, what are you going to be doing with Scientific American, and what more broadly? is the role of the blogger within both the science journalism world and the broader scientific world at this point, the whole world of research. Uh, we don't have three hours for this, but let me try to, uh, uh, try to explain it really, uh, really quickly. So, uh, my job is going to be, uh, to conceptualize, uh, design, launch, and then run, a, a, a network of independent bloggers who are going to be blogging under the banner of Scientific American alongside with Scientific American writers and editors and, and correspondents, uh, which adds, uh, another, uh, dimension because most of those people are scientists or uh, some of them are, you know, tenured, some of them are grad students, uh, but they uh, lend a dose of expertise that maybe somebody who just came from J school would not have. 
Uh, on the other hand, people from J school may write better. But you know, working together uh, and you know having each other as, as uh, role models and colleagues and discussing with each other, uh, both sides improve. What can you do as a blogger that maybe you can't do as a traditional journalist? I can uh, I can have a much stronger voice on like okay this is the truth. What do you mean by that though? Because uh, the tradition of the past I would say fifty years of journalism, especially U.S. journalism, is uh, the uh, so-called objectivity, which means uh, uh, you can't really say this is the truth. You have to put it into somebody else's mouth. Uh, oh, as you're quotes. talking about stenographers. Yeah. So what we're talking about here is a traditional journalist might think that his or her job is to quote the evolutionary biologist, quote the creationist, and let the reader decide, whereas the blogger can say, oh, by the way, this stuff that you're hearing from the creationist is nonsense. Uh, yeah, of course, there are good journalists who already do this, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, the, it, uh, it is... The, uh, the media is uh, very still uncomfortable with this idea that you're actually putting a truth statement on something yourself instead of as a quote. That's not real objectivity, though. That's a trap that it's a lot of mainstream journalists have fallen into. Yes, correct. It's a false objectivity. It's a, and it's, you know, covering oneself for, uh, you know, from being attacked by one side or the other. You have a really interesting personal background just in terms of i mean you're you're from a war-torn region quite literally how has tell a little bit about your your background and and whether the region has recovered in terms of the science used to have some wonderful science coming out of there and whether the science the research effort has has gotten back off the ground a little bit uh yeah then i i uh, the war-torn region, that's Yugoslavia. I was born in Yugoslavia. That's seven countries now. Uh, I was born in Belgrade, which is now Serbia. Uh, in the 90s, there were, you know, five wars and, I don't know, uh, you know, and sanctions and all that stuff. And a lot of bright scientists have left the, the country. Uh, it is recovering now. I was there two years ago, and I don't think Belgrade's ever looked as good as it is looking now. Uh, there is. Is that surprising to you that it looks so great so soon? Uh, I was surprised at how quick the recovery was because I was there in the middle of the 90s and it was very depressing. It was much worse than everything, you know, remembering from growing up. Uh, and, uh, and suddenly, you know, 08, 09, I went there twice and it's clean and it's colorful and it's wonderful. Uh, there's lots of new boutiques and stores and, uh, you know, scientists are, you know, uh, picking up the, there's the, the loss of the brain drain, but there's a lot of, you know, ex uh, excited new young people. Uh, they're, you know, first, uh, you know, that they had, for instance, uh, an open access event during the open access week, uh, uh, last year, actually in two or three different places. So, uh, they are now, uh, trying to quickly catch up and, and to see what's happened over these, you know, those 10 years in the world of science, in the world of science publishing and the web. Because of all the wars and sanctions, it's one of the uh, least online countries in Europe. And so they're trying to, to catch up on that as well. Did most of the scientists who left come to the U.S. or are they scattered all over? They're scattered all over. They're all over Europe. Uh, some are in U.S., Canada, 
wherever you could, you know, get a visa to get out. So, is yeah. there a virtual ex-Yugoslav scientific community that exists now because of the availability of of such a virtual world? Uh, not really. I mean, you know, pe- people kind of randomly find each other, say, "Hey, you're also Yugoslav," and uh, or ex-Yugoslav, and it's very interesting how the the people who have left of of different ages they don't really care are you Serb or Croat or Bosnian. You know, we are all ex-Yugoslavs. We speak the same language, and we are all scientists. Well, you know, let's talk. What are your favorite things to spend your time thinking about and writing about? Uh, it's, it's shifted. And even when you look at my blog, it, it's shifted. Now that I'm off the bench now for several years, it's becoming more and more difficult for me to actually write about the, you know, the, the science of my background, which is circadian rhythms. I still follow the, the, uh, the literature and talk to people, but I feel like I'm losing my touch with it as far as, you know, the details. It's ha- getting harder to write about it. So, what I'm writing most about now is the web, how social networks and blogs and things like that are, uh, are, are used. There's a, there's a lot of, you know, social science research now on, on that, how, for instance, scientific messages are propagating through, through Twitter or, or blogs and what is the quality of the blogs and It really like is fascinating when you're on Twitter to see how quickly messages wind up returning to you through networks that were previously unknown to you, or how people know each other who you would never have expected to know each other, and you, there are maybe only three degrees of separation between you and a lot of other people. Yes, that's that's absolutely fascinating, and and how uh, on Facebook it's it's very similar, uh, but 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 works in in different ways because it's a. You know, Twitter is asymmetric. You can follow it without being followed back. On, on Facebook, you have to follow each other mutually. And still, you get some of the same same patterns. And I think it's absolutely wonderful because when scientists, let's say, tweet or, or on Facebook chat with each other, there's a lot of non-scientists who are privy to that conversation and they find often the science stories uh, fascinating. And that is, that's a way... That uh, people who otherwise would not, let's say, buy Scientific American on the newsstand or uh, specifically go to a science blog or something like that, they, they keep hearing stories about science and find them fascinating and interesting. And that's uh, what, we, what we like to call the, the push strategy. Uh, pull strategy brings people who are already interested. They know they're interested in science. They come to a science site. Push strategy is pushing science to people who didn't even know they were excited about science until they saw it. So how can people access your writing in the Scientific American blog system? Uh, you'll find Scientific American blogs at scientificamerican.com slash blog. There are seven already and we'll have a whole network in, you know, a couple of months. Uh, my, uh, personal blog, which will eventually move onto the Scientific American, uh, site, uh, you can find it at blog.quaternix.org. C-O-T-U-R-N-I-X. .org for uh, all the wit and wisdom of Bora. I try. Finally, let's hear from Robin Lloyd, the Scientific American website news editor. She spoke recently as part of a panel addressing the future of science news reporting, an event that was part of Social Media Week. I'll let the moderator of that panel, Flatiron Communications' Peter Himmler, introduce her. 
Robin Lloyd is a sociologist turned science writer with extensive print and online experience at big and small news and science organizations on both coasts of the U.S. Um, she's at Scientific American, where she's responsible for editing and assigning online news stories. She also manages Siam's Twitter feed at Siam, S-C-I-A-M, and Facebook page. Previously, she was senior editor for LiveScience and Space.com. Uh, Robin has additional experience in print journalism, uh, in newspaper business, Pasadena Star News, Wire Journalism, City News Service of L.A., and network online journalism, CNN.com. She's a Ph.D. in sociology from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and received a Knight Science Journalism Fellowship at MIT. Uh, Robin? I want to just sort of stick really uh, close to the title of the session because I think that that's... It's just become, it's, it's a perennial topic, it's a monthly topic, it's a daily topic. Where is science news reporting heading? And I liked that you, uh, I mean, I found it interesting and, and, and challenging that I had to think about not just the future of science journalism, but the future of science news reporting. Um, because uh, you know, what we're seeing is that a lot of the science news that's being generated now is not pure journalism, or it might not be journalism at all. In fact, some of the people who are creating it don't want to be called journalists. They don't want to necessarily operate within the rules and code of conduct that journalism has prescribed for decades in this country. So um, that's been interesting and sometimes nerve-wracking for journalists to watch. It's sometimes confusing for non-journalists and people in the media sphere and the publicity sphere to engage with because it's kind of hard to know what sense to make of the new media landscape. We keep hearing this phrase of the new media landscape. So I'm going to throw out some answers to this quickly and then give you some of the evidence that I see for the trends that I'm noticing. And a lot of, every, you know, probably everyone in this room is responsible for coming up with these phrases and trends that I'm about to throw out or uh, is very aware of them. But I think it's good to revisit them and, and relist them and start to then say, well, what is the evidence for these trends and, and how valid, are, you know, really are these trends or are these just memes and catchphrases that we're throwing around. So we're seeing that um, science news these days is multi-platform. I work on the website. I've been working online on and off for the past um, 10 plus years. Um, online is this, you know, relatively new platform in the United States and, and abroad. Um, multi-platform does not just include the web. It includes Facebook and Twitter. We're now understanding at Scientific American and some of the other places that I've worked that our presence on Facebook and Twitter is really important, that these are publishing platforms for us. We're not just putting out a magazine. We're not just putting out a website. We need to be present and engaged and publishing on those platforms. Um, there are other platforms. Podcasting is very important. Uh, so the, the environment, the, the ecosystem, as my colleague Bora Zivkovich calls it, the ecosystem for science news is very dynamic. It's changing. The number of outlets is growing exponentially. Um, it's diversifying. The, the voices that we're hearing from, you know, we're not just hearing from the same people and the same demographic. We're hearing from people all over the world for science news. We're hearing from men. We're hearing from women. We're hearing from people in the United States. We're hearing from people outside of the United States. This is great. This is enriching. We're getting a diversity of perspectives. We're hearing stories that we never used to hear before. And, and that's exciting, and that's fun, and it's great for uh, education, it's uh, great for scientific progress, and it's great for um, you know, the progress of democracy and freedom, which are values that are really important to us. Science literacy, while uh, you know, the United States doesn't always score so great on that, I would argue that overall, among consumers of 
news and information. Science literacy is growing. Science curiosity is growing. People, I have so many friends now who aren't in science journalism but come up to me and say, you work at Scientific American? Cool. What did you work on today? What's new in science? And they really don't know a lot about climate change or they don't know a lot about evolution or they don't know a lot about biodiversity, but they want to know more. And they, they, they see me as a source of that. There's a lot of pressure. And I do try to give them at least some kind of answer. But there is a growing, uh, in the community of people who are consuming news and information now, there is a lot more interest in science, technology, math, and engineering. STEM, some people call that. Um, NSF is very interested in promoting STEM information. There's a lot more experimentation which we're seeing online and in all these digital platforms that I'm talking about, which is exciting. And then there's, you know, along with that comes mistakes, um, misinformation, um, holes, gaps in coverage. But I think experimentation is good. It's at the heart of science. I'm a bit of an advocate for the scientific method and for scientific progress and the promotion of scientific information. And that's part of what we do at Scientific American. So um, we're narrow casting. So uh, we used to broadcast. That's the one-to-many model where there was one voice, you know, Peter Jennings, Walter Cronkite. These were the, you know, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. These were the, the, the voices, right? And, and they would broadcast their information out to everybody. And now we're doing a lot more narrow casting. We're moving toward narrow casting, which means uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of outlets are communicating with smaller groups of people. But, um, one of the, but some of the new technology tools that are out there, obviously Facebook and Twitter are the big ones right now, are really helping us with the narrow casting such that we get to curate the feed that we get every day. So Twitter has basically become my newspaper. I, cu- I curate it every day. Every day I'm pruning it ruthlessly following new people, unfollowing new people. I follow more than 600 people. Sure, I don't read every one of those tweets, but any time that I check in, any half hour that I have, every 10 minutes that I have, any five minutes that I have, I can go to Twitter and see what's breaking, what people are talking about in the field that I have chosen to define by the people that I follow on Twitter right now. That's invaluable. It doesn't matter that I don't read everybody's tweets every day. It's, the, it's, it's that any time I've got a newspaper for the f- interests that I have right now, what's going on, and read the influencers in that field. So back to evidence. So the evidence for this came a few weeks ago. The, the best evidence I have came a few weeks ago. I got back from Science Online 2011. This is the fifth year of this conference. It's a science blogging conference, and um, it's it's an amazing place because um, it's, it's, it's everything that I've just been talking about happens at Science Online, and it's very challenging as a journalist to go to Science Online because a lot of the people at Science Online do not call themselves journalists, do not want to be journalists, but they are leaders and innovators and pioneers and, and doing really important writing, like Ed Yong. But basically, um, they're doing a lot of the really exciting work right now in science news reporting. So I see a lot of future happening there. What happened at Science Online? Well, first of all, registration occurred in November. There were 300 seats. Registration closed in 45 minutes. That's how excited people are right now in my field to go to Science Online. Um, so, yeah, Science Online sold out in 45 minutes. There were 300 of us there. There could have been 600 easily. It could have been 1,000. They just don't have the space in the budget right now. Hopefully next year, I think, Bora Zivkovich, my, again, the blogging community's editor at Scientific American now, we're so lucky that he's on board with us right now. He's really the guru right now for science blogging. He really knows the landscape. Um, 
He is hoping for uh, 500, a space for 500 next year, and I think it'll still be down in Durham. The fact that it's in Durham is very telling and interesting, too, right? Research Triangle is so dynamic right now. It didn't really catch on at first, but now it's really catching on. That's very interesting that it's in a scientific research center that is you know, anchored by three or four really strong research universities right now. So you see the energy moving away from, again, the media and more into uh, the field of science. So who was there? I didn't get any exact figures, and I'm not sure if Bora and Anton Zyker, the co, uh, co-organizers of Science Online, have done the statistics on this. But it, it just anecdotally, it looks like one-third, one-third, one-third. So about a third of the people there are journalists. They're, they're conventional. You know, to, to a certain extent, we've got staff uh, or full-time you know, paid jobs to do science journalism. Another third are scientists who've decided to blog in their free time. It doesn't necessarily help them get tenure. They're doing it because they love to communicate about science. It's basically unpaid. And there's, that, that's a whole trend among scientists right now is they're dying to communicate. They're excited. They're, they're wired. They know how to set up a blog, and they want to tell you about it. And uh, they're curating information for us, too. And they're not just promoting themselves and their own research. They're, they're, they're promoting their field. They're promoting other interesting stuff they read about. They're thinking about what they're doing. There's a lot of meta writing that they do about the science blogging that they're doing. And the last third are bloggers, just straight bloggers, right? I'm not a scientist. I'm not a journalist. I'm a blogger. Don't call me a scientist. You know, so... Uh, and, and there's a there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a cowboy kind of mentality I call it that happens there where um, I live by my own rules a lot of individualism they are informed by journalism they're informed by the scientific method and scientists but my sense is that there is some resistance to living by anybody's rules that's kind of what some a lot of people who've embraced the internet and the web really love is you know writing your own story choosing your own template choosing your own layout and deciding how to tell the story and so that's where you get all the innovation you get a lot of narrow casting happening there and a lot of new stories that we never would have heard otherwise i i see a movement toward journalism even among people who aren't embracing journalism so one of the reasons that you can argue this is there is this uh, this definition of journalism that gets tossed around sometimes, and it's a quote from this gentleman named Lord Northcliffe. Lord Northcliffe's definition is that uh, journalism is something that somebody somewhere wants to suppress. Everything else is advertising. And the interesting thing about that definition, which of course could be argued against, this is not the be-all and end-all definition of journalism, though, is that that means that a lot of us in this room in the current climate in this country towards science and technology and a lot of, you know, the, 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 uh, toward reason, rationality, the scientific method, are engaging in acts of journalism pretty regularly. Just simply putting out scientific information, sticking to data, sticking to evidence, and promoting the scientific method in any way, and, and saying, let's look at the evidence here and make a decision based on that. This is not always a popular position or, uh, you know, the reigning position right now among uh, the leadership in our country. So the other thing that happens with the, the bloggers is also moving in that direction. A lot of the bloggers are joining networks now. And so uh, scienceblogging.org is um, a site that uh, Bora and Anton pulled together to highlight. So it could be a one-stop shop for all the science blogging news that you want to get at any day, and it's auto-updating throughout the day. And it basically lists about 25 science blogging networks and some of the names of the blogs that are part of those um, networks. Networks are basically um, 
being launched by major media outlets, for instance, um, Public Library of Science, Wired, uh, Discover Magazine has one, The Guardian has a blogging network. Um, these are the, these are some of the major ones. And, um, what happens when you join a network that is operated by a journalistically oriented outlet is that your writing starts to become more journalistic, more within the tradition of journalism. So I'm seeing, even among sort of the very cowboy, very independent, I'm not a journalist blogosphere, there is a move toward operating within the strictures and codes and approaches and training on traditions of journalism. So I'm actually quite optimistic and excited about um, the blogosphere and um, what it can do for the future of science news uh, reporting. That's it for this episode. Get your science news edited by Robin Lloyd at www.scientificamerican.com where you can check out the video I shot at the Bronx Zoo of a giraffe undergoing operant conditioning. And follow us on Twitter where you'll get a tweet about each new article posted to our website. Our Twitter handle is at Siam. And don't forget to get the free Scientific American Advances app for your smartphone. As I discovered a few days ago, a smartphone can come in really handy for shooting videos of giraffes. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 